Hey, this is Charlie Warzel, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. We're back this week with a new episode in our summer series where we're bringing you episodes every other week featuring a deep dive interview with a person of interest or somebody who we think has a lot to say about politics right now. This week, we're talking to BuzzFeed News' media editor, Craig Silverman. We're going to talk about fake news and misinformation and all the different platforms like Facebook that control everything that we see online. It's a really great conversation about the role of the internet in this time where it's basically like the Wild West and nobody knows what's going on. Uh, It was really fascinating and informative, and I hope you enjoy it. So joining me now is uh, BuzzFeed News' media editor, Craig Silverman, who is joining us from Australia. So thank you, Craig, for A, coming on, and B, probably waking up ridiculously early to squeeze us in. There is a bit of a time difference, uh, but I'm happy to be here. Thanks. So what do you do here at BuzzFeed all day? So my focus is on online misinformation as a big piece of it. So that includes fake news, propaganda, all of the different strains of that. And I'm also really interested in how the big platforms like Google and Facebook are affecting the information that we get on a daily basis. And that has led me to look a lot at uh, the new kind of world of partisan media in politics in the U.S. and also how this misinformation just spreads globally as well. What does that look like these days? I mean, it's just a gargantuan topic spanning everything. And lately, what's your lane and how did you sort of arrive on prioritizing that? Well, I mean, I I, I sort of got back on this beat a little more than a year ago. And at that point, I was really interested in the 100% purely fake stuff that people were creating and spreading to earn money. Uh, And that's, for me, that's the sort of pure definition of fake news, even though I realize the term has just, you know, gone off the rails. But as we've evolved and after the election, where I think people kind of woke up to, hey, there's this kind of online species who make stuff up and get it to spread for money um, and are often attacking politics with it. From there, I think right now, one of the big focuses for me is the area of digital deception in general. And so so part of that is um, partisan publishers on the left and the right who are you know, really aggressively marketing their stuff on Facebook and really go for people's emotions. And I'm, I'm interested in how that universe has been expanding at a huge, huge rate over the last, say, two years and what its effect on the political discourse is. And I'm, I'm also really interested in just all the ways that Facebook is being gamed because it's, as one partisan publisher told me, it's, it's a giant cash machine. It's a money machine. And so people are just attacking it every day. And I, I want to get into all that. And I, I figured one way maybe we could try to enter this conversation is to start with a little of what's in the news right now. Obviously, one of the bigger stories floating around is the kind of the aftershocks of the Charlottesville attack. And it sort of gets in everything that you're mentioning here. You've got partisan news that latches on. You have the platforms themselves playing sort of these gatekeeper roles and choosing what they you know want to have on and what they don't want to have on. And I wanted to get a sense from you of how an event like this plays out on your beat. Yeah, one of the I think one of the starting points is that you know when there's a big news event and at the at the genesis of that news event, you know, there is a divide on it. You have you have literal neo-Nazis marching, you have Antifa there, you have, you know, protesters and counter-protesters, you have an element of extreme left and extreme right. So from the birth of it, you know, for me, I know that there's going to be a lot of different interpretations and then the different propagation of those interpretations through the ecosystems. And 
on a really basic level, I mean, what that means is when the news starts happening in Charlottesville, um, you know, the, the partisan websites, the partisan, you know, trolls and, and activists on Twitter and elsewhere are really just going to start figuring out what their line is, what their angle is, and start pushing that. And one of the things that you see happen is people sometimes kind of rise above the fold and figure out the take that their side likes. And then that's just starts spreading across websites, across Twitter, across Facebook pages. One of the things that you see is, is kind of the message being crafted and then disseminated on either side of it. And, you know, obviously for the folks um, that are more left-leaning, the focused on, on the people with, you know, Nazi Germany flags marching, focused on uh, the violent clashes, and then subsequently focused on Trump's inadequate response. On the right, what you've been seeing, and actually just looking this morning, we've, we have a, a list of close to 700 partisan websites, and we kind of uh, also have their associated Facebook pages, and we watch to see what stuff is performing well. And a a lot of the kind of hyperpartisan right-wing sites are very much um, pushing a lot of anti-antifa content. Um, and the other thing that's happened that's kind of interesting is obviously on the left, people are saying, hey, these are these are literal Nazis. You people, you conservatives need to need to like separate yourselves from them. And, and, and it's sort of an accusation that this is what you represent. And so the people on the right sort of say, well, Antifa is your worst example. And but what's also happening is Black Lives Matter is being brought back into this debate. There are, um, you know, right wing websites who are trying to find uh, things that Black Lives Matter leaders or or people tangentially associated with the movement have said that might seem objectionable and ginning that up. So so I, in a way, I guess it's the outrage machine kind of cranks up. It finds its material. It propagates it out. And you have just kind of this war of these two sides that hardly ever actually interact, um, just crafting their own messages. And we see the reverberations to this day. Lots of Black Lives Matter, lots of Antifa stuff is really trending on on right wing websites. You called it like a, a machine, and it really feels like that in the sense that everyone has their own different parts that they play, and they sort of do it independently, I feel. And you study this at a much more granular level, and I'm, I'm curious if you see that too, if you see sort of everyone knows the role they must play when news breaks and then scatters and goes and does it. What's your sense? Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I would say that I, I don't think that there's... Uh, necessarily a broad coordination and orchestration. I mean, when when we talk about, for example, partisan Facebook pages or partisan websites, there are networks that are, are of several pages of several sites that are owned by the same people. But in a lot of cases, there's separate people working on those properties. So I think overall, I don't get the sense that there's any kind of central brain, you know, whether it's on the right or the left, that kind of dictates um, and is giving people orders. But I also think that there's some element of habit. There's some element of practice that comes into play play. And part of it, what's important to understand about it is, you know, there is a financial element to this as well. Um, there are people who are trying to raise their profile in order to create new opportunities for them as a commentator or what have you. There are people who run the websites and run the Facebook pages who run them very much like a business. And so when these events happen, they have a very um, transactional approach to it in some ways. Like there are absolutely passionate partisans, people who genuinely believe in each cause, but there's also people who are, you know, opportunists as well. And so I think that there is almost a script that 
plays out, but it's not like people are consciously following it. It's just that when a news event happens, they know for them to get the traction on Facebook and elsewhere, they need to find the right way to, to create an angle for it. They need to find the right way to headline it for their audience. And so we end up seeing the same kind of tropes used, and we see the same kind of elements of you know people on Twitter coming up and finding images that make the other side look bad and, and getting people to retweet those. So there is almost a playbook to it. But it's not like people are necessarily going behind the scenes and saying, all right, everyone published this story. They're doing it because somebody publishes it, it performs well, and they all copy it to a certain extent. And that financial incentive dovetails nicely into a, a piece that you guys, we, I guess BuzzFeed News, but you specifically uh, recently published, um, looking at this universe in great detail. And you wrote that, quote, Donald Trump has unleashed a golden age of aggressive, divisive political content that reaches a massive amount of people on Facebook. And I read that and I see it's getting worse. What is your what is your read? The, the state of it right now is, frankly, there's a lot of frustration on the part of people who run these pages and run these sites. And, and obviously, you know, the kinds of things we're talking about would be like Occupy Democrats and Addicting Info and the other 98 percent. Uh, on the left and on the right, things like, you know, conservative Tribune, you could probably throw Infowars in there, um, you know, right wing news, uh, American news, Mr. Conservative. Uh, so these these are pages that often are they're very large. They have millions of fans typically. And they are the sole source, for the most part, of traffic for the associated websites, which is where the ads are and where they make money from. And so when we talk to people who run these pages and we talk to people on the left and on the right, um, there is overall a huge sense of frustration that they feel like Facebook is really kicking their butts right now. Um, they, they had an amazing 2016 and 2015 was pretty good to them as well. People earned a lot of money. But since the election and since all of the concern about fake news, about manipulation and to a certain extent about hyperpartisanship and its effect on political discourse, Facebook has rolled out a lot of initiatives aiming at reducing content that is seen as low quality, low information or obviously completely false. And these page owners are on both sides very frustrated, though I would say the conservative side is even more frustrated. Now, that having been said, you know, they're frustrated that their posts get removed or they get temporary bans or their reach isn't what it used to be. They feel like they're being punished for the stuff that they do. That being said, I mean, there's there's still a tremendous amount of engagement for this stuff. There's still a very big engine that can rev up and reach a lot of people through Facebook. And so while I overall, I think the people in this industry are very frustrated and some of them are even exiting it because of that. They feel like Facebook is targeting them. Um, there are still new entrants coming in all the time. There are still people making good money off of it. And it's tough to see it completely disappear. Some people are like, well, maybe it's a flash in the pan. But, you know, there's always going to be a certain amount of money made. And whether it's Americans doing it or the opportunity for money reaches such a low extent that it's only appealing for people overseas, we're probably going to see this beast there forever. I feel like there's always this element of whack-a-mole that, that plays up. I wonder if you've thought about the consequences of Facebook starting to crack down, not just on, hey, this is getting better, we're losing a little of it, but also the idea that these people making money off of hyperpartisan sites, having to get more creative and sort of by cracking down on it, you almost sophisticate the fake news or the misinformation or the whatever, that it's going to get worse. 
Yeah, I mean, there are there are a bunch of potentially really, really terrible consequences. Because overall, of course, there has never been a beast like Facebook in the history of humanity and human communication. Uh, the you know, there's more than two billion people that log in every month. A lot of those are in it far more than that. It has a tremendous effect in in some countries on the news and information that people consume, and it's fundamentally delivering it to them in a different way. And Facebook has a tremendous amount of control and influence as a result of that. And so the first danger, of course, is censorship, that Facebook, depending on what it chooses to highlight and what it chooses to suppress through the rules it writes and its algorithms, it's deciding what people see. And, and if Facebook were to decide, you know what, partisan news in general is a bad thing for Facebook, let's really reduce all of this content. I mean, arguably, that would be a really dangerous thing. Because partisan news in and of itself is not a bad thing. I mean, there is a long history of partisan news in the United States and in other countries. Um, you know, the earliest newspapers were very tied to specific political leanings and often directly tied to parties. Um, but Facebook has unleashed kind of a new beast that's a little more, that's more aggressive, um, that has a lot more kind of financially driven players in it. And over time, the algorithm has really pushed them, frankly, to be publishing stuff that is more and more misleading because that's what's getting rewarded. So the danger is that Facebook cranks it back too far the other way and starts censoring all kinds of political speech. I mean, I think that is a huge, huge uh, concern that's a part of it. Um, and, and, you know, another one that you raise is that whatever Facebook tries to kill, um, people find other ways. When I talk to people at Facebook, they talk about a very motivated adversary. And that's, that's not necessarily specific to conservative publishers, but that's, you know, spammers and people using fake accounts and people gaming the system. And people will forever be gaming the Facebook system. And if Facebook clamps down in one area, they will pop up in another. And we just can't predict whether that actually is, they pop up with a new technique that's actually better, arguably for the information people receive, or if it actually just gets worse. Uh, I, I mean, just, just I guess it was last week or the week before, you know, to show the ingenuity of, of folks on Facebook, uh, outside of even the political realm, what, there were these videos on Facebook that were getting massive, massive amounts of views. And when you went and looked at the video, you realized that all they had done was they had taken a static meme, so just like an image, and they had turned it into a video and just like had it play for 12 seconds as a video, even though literally nothing changed. It was just the same image. And the reason they were doing that is that the algorithm really rewards video as far as what people see on Facebook. And so instead of posting an image, they posted a video. It performed better. They got millions of views. It grew their page. It got them reach. And on a small level, that's the kind of thing we see. And Facebook came along two weeks later and knocked that out. But who knows what people are going to come up with next? Who knows how extreme people have to go in order to get their engagement? And that's certainly a concern to have. So I want to back up a little for the audience. Can you talk about Facebook's role in the 2016 election? You know, obviously, I spent a lot of time looking at the conspiracy spirit theories, the completely fake stories, the really misleading stories that spread in the lead up to the election and did some analysis to that. And in a nutshell, found that some of the biggest viral hits specifically related to the 2016 election were, were often completely false stories. And when, when I compared them to the top viral hits from 19 really big media organizations in the U.S., um, the fake ones, as we got into the final three months leading up to the election, outperformed um, the real viral hits. And it's key to look at the viral ones because that's how the fake sites live and die. They, they live by viral hits. They're, they obviously don't have a recurring audience like big media companies, but it's insane to imagine that 
that these kind of fly-by-night operations were making up stories and getting more traction than the biggest viral hits about the election from, you know, the Washington Post and New York Times. And so that was something I saw, but it wasn't something that I think Facebook had really oriented its teams and its massive data infrastructure to be analyzing and watching for. And so the election happened. People were shocked at Trump's win. They went looking for answers. And I think in a lot of cases, in an exaggerated way, they started saying, oh, oh, my God, he was elected because of fake news, you know, which is not a valid conclusion. But there was a big backlash towards Facebook and Facebook's initial reaction is really kind of dismissive because, frankly, I think I think they didn't really have a sense of how big this stuff had gone. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about this is is how surprised Facebook was by what was going on on its own platform when it comes to the election. That's and I think that really communicates what what a just massive, unprecedented thing Facebook is. Uh, and so it's hard for them to manage a platform that is that big and to actually see what is happening. First, it was people in the US, but then pretty soon governments around the world started waking up and saying, hey, there, there could be manipulation on this mass scale here in my country. And you know, Germany has basically no qualms about regulating big companies like Facebook and Google and said to them, we will regulate you unless you get this in hand. And there's even been legislation passed there to give fines to platforms that that don't remove content that violates their pretty stringent hate speech laws fast enough. So they have received pressure from the public. They've received it from governments. Um, they've also been under pressure from you know, other companies pointing to them, from political parties themselves. And so Facebook has had to go from basically zero in this area up to a really fast running start, where, as you say, they've been rolling out products. They've been partnering with third party fact checkers. They've also just kind of had a charm initiative going on, whereby right now they're funding lots. They're sponsoring lots of journalism conferences. They're funding lots of initiatives and research. You know, they put at least a couple million, if not more, into a, a, a news integrity um, initiative at, uh, at City University of New York. So they are really trying to change what's going on. And I think it's a genuine effort. But it's also notable because there wasn't really any of this happening before the election, which is one of the reasons why it became such a big thing. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Craig Silverman. I think one great point that you bring up is the unprecedented nature of the scale of Facebook. In the wake of Charlottesville and the neo-Nazis, there's been a huge call for Facebook to put its foot down and just simply kick these people off the platform. But I feel like there's something to be said here with Facebook and, and the fact that it wants to move slowly because there is a huge precedent at play here, again, with the scale. And, and I think that maybe the fact that Facebook isn't going so fast shows that it understands the role it's playing. Yeah, I mean, I think they're aware in a general way of of the potential for impact. They're also trying to very delicately navigate, you know, regulation and outrage from, you know, different sides of the political divide from, you know, outrage from their average user. I mean, it's 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 a minefield for them. And I think that they are trying to be careful and deliberate how they go about things. But, you know, as you said, the scale of this, we're in such uncharted territory 
when it comes to to this media universe, where the kind of orderly world, uh, where you know there was large mainstream media organizations that all operated in relatively a similar kind of way, and and admittedly, you know, people have raised concerns about bias with them. They're, they were not perfect, but it was a media universe that people kind of got used to to a certain extent, and it and it did allow for conservative media to to build its, its kind of own world on talk radio and other places. And what's happened is all of that has flipped, and the platforms are the ones with all the control rather than the broadcasters or what have you. And nobody knows what a world like that really looks like, and that includes the platforms. And so they're trying to sort of tread carefully, and frankly, they're also trying to not take on um, you know, the role of publisher because they see that as a horrible, terrible thing that will hurt share price and all these other things. At the same time, however, I also have to say a lot of the people that I talk to in this world and not just in the political world on Facebook, but in other areas, you know, who run and grow pages and then often try to sell them, you know, they, they feel like it isn't clear um, and the rules aren't applied clearly by Facebook. And for me, I just sort of wonder, well, how could they possibly apply these rules equally across you know, all of the countries that they're in, all the language they operate in. At the end of the day, you know, the failures of Facebook come down to failures of humans in a lot of ways, um, but they're also playing out on a scale that's just simply unheard of. So I genuinely appreciate the difficult situation that they're in, but I also think, you know, I'm reminded of Adam Osseri, the, the head of Newsfeed at Facebook, speaking at a journalism conference in Italy back in the spring, where he said, Basically, you know, for the size of company we are in terms of our revenue, in terms of our impact on the world, we're actually very small. He's like, we, you know, we don't have that many people considering how big Facebook is. And I was sitting in the audience and I just thought, yeah, and, you know, maybe that's a bit of a problem because, <laughs> uh, because you know, the bias is towards automating things and using algorithms because they scale and humans are kind of messy. But the reality is that at the end of the day, um, the only way Facebook is going to enforce uh, its rules fairly and equitably is if it has enough people focused on these problems, um, can train them effectively and, and have it work well. Uh, you know, algorithms have bias just like people, but when you're as big as they are and you're putting everything in the machines, I mean, that's going to create a certain kind of problem. Uh, so for me, I just I look at this this world that we're in right now. And every day I just try to remind myself that all of this is is really new. All of this is unprecedented. Like, don't get comfortable with it. And I encourage the average person to think about that as well. Think think very clearly about the, your, the information and how you're getting it and how different it is, because it's it's incredible, really, the change that's happened. And at the same time, you have. Facebook, which is a business, and I think that that is often completely forgotten in this, and adds just another rub. Above all else, Facebook is not a steward for humanity. It's a business that's going to make those sort of decisions based off of, you know, their stock price and their shareholders. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, they kind of are. If we think about their potential effect on democracy, on politics around the world, um, there has never been anything with more influence uh, that Facebook can have. And so, yes, they are a company and they're public and they have to you know, think about shareholders and all those things. But the fact is, the impact they can have is also insane. I mean, when we think about the fact that huge amounts of political advertising is now moving on to Facebook and campaigns are using what are called dark post ads, which means they can create an ad that looks like it came from their Facebook page targeted at very specific people. And the only people who ever see that ad are the ones who are targeted with it. It does not show up on that, you know, that campaigns or that candidate's Facebook page. And people are using this to test, you know, hundreds and thousands of variations of 
political ads to see which ones work with people, but also, frankly, to see which ones get past Facebook's automated, you know, uh, review of like, well, is there offensive content in here? Is it hate speech or what have you? Uh, and that's where the money is going for political advertising. And we journalists and researchers and other people who have always looked at political ads as something to study and understand, we have no visibility. And that's one example of how, yeah, they're a company and they're making huge amounts of money from these political ads now, but in terms of the accountability structure around it and its potential impact, it's completely unprecedented. It's very easy when you start talking about this to get dystopian in a quick way. When you speak to people about this, what's the vibe? Are, 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 do people get sort of existential about this real quick? I, I think there are different people reacting different ways. And of course, there's a lot of self-interest that's involved in this stuff as well. I mean, sure. when, I, when I talk to people who run big Facebook pages uh, in, in the political realm, I mean, their, their concern is that their, their business is completely dependent on Facebook. And frankly, on a really granular level, they often complain that there's no one at Facebook they can talk to to understand you know, why their reach is terrible and, and why, why posts are being lost. I think there, there are the people who have that kind of transactional, like, I got a business to run view of this. There are people also who, who absolutely um, take things too far, which happens a lot in our world. Um, and I think in some cases assume that Facebook operates with a certain amount of malice. And, and I don't think that's true. I mean, I think Facebook can have a hugely negative effect if, if when things go wrong. But I, I think in general, there are people there who are trying to figure things out and, and do things well. Um, and then you have the other, another kind of core constituency, frankly, our, our researchers in academia and other places who, um, I mean, Facebook is this amazing magnet for talent now where anyone who's really good at artificial intelligence, programming in certain areas, F Facebook and Google are really hoovering up all of the best talent in some really key critical technical areas. And so the best programs are seeing all their people go to these companies. But the problem that academia has is that Facebook doesn't really share any data and is very tight about what, you know, what papers being produced internally actually get released. And so for them, the concern is that we have no visibility. We have the most important communications infrastructure in the history of humanity, and we can't really study it effectively. It actually is a, a pure expression of how these platforms sort of talk about, we are all about communication, we are all about connection, we are all about free speech, and we want to support those things. Um, and, and we also are all about, you know, supporting, you know, healthy political conversations and democracy. They, they talk about all that stuff, and that's very, you know, positive messaging and very appealing messaging. But if you get down to it in this element, there's a huge amount of money to be made from the, these dark ads. And I couldn't effectively put that in context of that revenue versus others. But I mean, there is, there is millions and tens of millions and potentially hundreds of millions that may have been spent on this stuff in the 2016 cycle. With that in mind, fake news has become sort of this... I'm sure you hate it more than anyone else out there. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, whatever term. And there's so much nuance to it. What do you see as the most pressing, be it, you know, the, the financial incentives of these networks or just simply like the distribution or the transparency as we were just talking about? Like, what of those things when you prioritize them feels the most pressing? I think there's some things that have actually been attacked pretty well. Like initially, if we were talking back in November or December, I probably would have said, you know, I think the financial incentives piece is, is a really effective one to go after initially, because if you shut off the ability to make money, then you remove a lot of players from the from from this area. 
And, and I think, frankly, uh, Facebook and, and Google have, have taken a bunch of strides in that area, but, uh, but certainly the financial incentives are a big one. Uh, and, and part of that is not only just kind of removing them, but when you, when you remove the purely financial driven players, what's left is an area where I think, you know, we have to have a huge amount of concern. What's left are the, you know, state sponsored actors or other very motivated people who are doing this for ideology, um, who, who, you know, for propaganda reasons or what have you. And one of the interesting things about the election was that if you accept um, that in general, Russia was trying to influence the election and we're trying to influence it in favor of Donald Trump, which I think is a reasonable thing to accept, even though what specifically they did or did not do, I think has not been, been proven publicly clearly. If you right. accept that, and then you look at what was actually going viral from the purely financial driven players, it was pretty much the same thing. So the, the propaganda stuff was also the stuff that the purely financial players realized was the best performing. Um, and so, so that's why it was so crazy is that you had a confluence of economically driven actors and ideologically or state sponsored actors, and it, each was covering the other. So if we, if we can actually tamp down the financial incentives for manipulating public discourse, for you know, affecting American and other democracies, if you can start to remove that, then what's, it's harder for those other state sponsored and really disconcerting actors, it's harder for them to kind of cover themselves. So I think, I think that's, you know, that's one thing that's really important. And another one, which it sounds so kind of banal, uh, but the transparency piece is important. And it, it relates to what we've talked about with the kind of dark ads on Facebook is that these companies have now started to realize the power and influence they have. They are starting to act on it. And that is as dangerous as them not acting on it. And if we can't get some additional transparency about what they are doing, I don't expect them to open up all their algorithms. I'm not unrealistic about it. But, um, but enabling people to actually you know, participate in these efforts in meaningful ways and for there to be some basic accountability on what they're doing and what the results are. I mean, if we don't have that, then there's a, a really great danger that we go too far in the other direction and we basically give birth to the world's greatest censors. How does a site like Breitbart, especially one that might now be sort of weaponized by an insider, how does it dovetail with the, the less governed and less popular sites? Uh, Breitbart is definitely at, at the high end in terms of, um, of its influence, and it gets, it gets a lot of engagement on Facebook. And I think it, it kind of plays this role as, um, as a standard bearer for a, a certain approach and a certain point of view. And so when Breitbart, we talked a little bit about Charlottesville and how people on the left and on the right and the publishers had to figure out, well, what's my line? What's my angle on this? Breitbart, I think, has a really leading role in figuring out what the line, what the angle is for a specific segment of um, alt-right, further right, um, you know, anti-globalist types of folks. So they are, they are a place where, you know, they're really going to come up with the take on something. And then you're going to see that propagated throughout other sites. So they're kind of a beacon in that sense, um, a, you know, a crafter of messaging that then gets distributed in a lot of ways. So I think they, they have a fair amount of influence in that sense. Um, the other part that I think you also can't separate from Breitbart is, you know, it is, it is primarily funded by the billionaire Mercer family who supported Trump, who have been Steve Bannon's benefactors for a long time with films and other things. And I don't think it has to be run like a pure business, but the fact that it is kind of an ideologically driven 
place that potentially has access to unreserved capital, that makes it a very unique player as well. Whereas other places are, you know, run as much smaller operations, you know, they, they got to make their money. And Breitbart, as much as, you know, they're trying to turn it into a business, whether it becomes extremely profitable as a business or not, I think is secondary to it being extremely influential in the world. The last thing I really wanted to touch on with you before you go is that a portion of your work in the day-to-day is debunking or kind of putting out the fire of whatever scam or, you know, uh, awful uh, misinformation campaign is creating chaos on the internet. Simply put, I guess, are you pessimistic seeing all this and dealing with this? Or how do you come out on the next five years? Sometimes they're, they're surprisingly sophisticated and it's literally hours or days of work to untangle the whole thing. Um, that example of, of the pretty well done uh, in terms of a technical execution of a fake Guardian article, which as far as we can tell w- was created in order to be used as kind of propaganda material for Russian state media, um, which in itself is kind of a complicated strategy. The idea of creating a fake article in English so that it could be reflected back in Russia on Russian state media seems like kind of crazy, but it's actually something that, that happens relatively frequently. Um, and it's like literal evolution, right? Like it is, it is like the second stage of existence for these things. It's uh, look. The, the reality is there are there are people with different motivations who wake up every day thinking about how they kind of raise the bar. I mean, it's an area rife with innovation, I guess, to use Silicon Valley speak on it. <laughs> and uh, and 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 that and that being said, you know, there are also some very unsophisticated players, but. The reality is that it's it's kind of like internet security. It's kind of like all these areas where you know it never ends. So what's going to happen over the next five years? I think right now some of the strictly for-profit stuff that's purely fake and operates in a certain way has been relatively reined in. It still exists, but it's not seeing the same traction on Facebook. So so that one uh, for right now is pushed back, but. What are the opportunities as, you know, technology for faking videos gets better and better and better and literally putting words in people's mouths so that it fools a lot of people. So um, and and the other thing over the next five years is, you know, Facebook is continuing to grow and also artificial intelligence is going to continue to grow and the ability to craft entire digital worlds that are not just one article or what have you um, and to have and to manipulate artificial intelligence and manipulate algorithms I mean, I think uh, that's just going to get more and more advanced. And so it's tough for me to predict where all that's going to go. But the thing I worry about most right now is that we have a moment where a lot of people are really engaged and focused on this area. Technologists, academics, um, you know, politicians, uh, nonprofits, foundations. A lot of people are really trying to figure this out. And that's great. But what if in a year from now, everybody has kind of moved on? And then all of the progress that has been made could could literally be erased. So that's where I worry about it a bit. And the other thing that I worry about is on a really basic level, the average person being given, you know, better tools. uh, And I don't mean in terms of technology, but in terms of their minds to navigate this world on their own, because all of us have more responsibility now for being conscious about the information that we're being fed and, and we're consuming and where it's coming from. That's completely new. And if we don't find ways of really helping all of us adapt to that 
and training younger people and giving them the resources to think for themselves and understand this world, then I think it could easily get worse. And, and we can get into scenarios that are kind of like science fiction novels. Um, that's a concern I have on it, but it's never going to end, I guess, is the other piece of it. So we could talk in five years and we could just talk about other new scams and scams and uh, you know things that have been going on and it'll still be there for sure. Thank you so much for getting into this with us. Uh, it is truly a wild and crazy place, but I'm, I think we got to let you go and, uh, and enjoy the winter in Australia. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it, was, it was great to talk about it, and hopefully people aren't too depressed now. Ah, uh, you know, it's, it's a politics podcast. They'll be depressed at the end of it regardless. <laughs> Thanks again to Craig Silverman, whose great reporting you can find all over BuzzFeed News. Uh, his most recent article, Inside the Partisan Fight for Your News Feed, came out earlier this month, and it is a fantastic look into everything that we talked about. So please check that out, and you can find it in our show notes. Just a reminder that we are officially in summer series mode. That means we're airing episodes every other week that feature a deep dive interview with a person of interest. And whenever a new story breaks, though, that we think deserves a little bit of unpacking, we're going to pop back into your podcast feed with a short segment. So please keep your eyes out for those when news happens. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer, Eleanor Kagan, and Alex Laughlin. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Our production support comes from Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at at Kate Nocera and at C. Warzel. See you later.